Sometimes we as believers need more than anything else a good, simple, profound reminder of Jesus. What Jesus has done, what Jesus has promised to do in the future, what Jesus is doing now. Sometimes we need that more than we need anything else. We need that when we are tempted. We need that when we are sinning. We need that when we are struggling with doubts. We need that when we're discouraged. Time and time again, what we need before we need anything else is we need a reminder about Jesus. And Hebrews is just what the doctor ordered. Hebrews gives us that clear, bold, compassionate, forceful reminder that Jesus is everything. That Jesus is better. I mentioned last Sunday, if you were here, you heard me mention that that could be a great, simple theme for the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. It could be a great, simple theme because at least 13 times the Greek word that is translated better or something like it is used in the book of Hebrews. It's, it's emphasized again and again that Jesus is better, that he is sufficient, that he is supreme, and, and, and he is everything, and he is all you need. And What's interesting about that is Jesus is better, but not better as in, and there might be something new and better later. Jesus is better. Couple that statement with the other significant statement in the book of Hebrews, and that is that word that's used, and that word is eternal. Used again and again, that he is the, the ultimate better. He is the end all. He is the climax. He is the high point. And we've got to remember to keep our eyes fixed on him. And that's what we're going to do as we study the book of Hebrews together. This morning we're going to start and we're going to look at chapter 1. And in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, as we see that Jesus is better, sufficiently, eternally better, we are going to look at the first four verses that provide an overall big picture of what the whole thing is about. It's introductory and it's profoundly rich. And if you'd like an outline, in those opening four verses, we can highlight seven reasons that Jesus is better. And then in verses 5 to 14 in the rest of the book, he's then into the the argumentation, if you will, of the book. And he talks about how Jesus is better, not just in general sense, but he's better than the angels. And we'll talk about why it's important that he established the fact that Jesus is not only better in a general sense, but he's he's better than the angels. I have to tell you that I just had the greatest time preaching this first hour. It's just been great to study. It's been great to read and great to meditate on. And, and, and I felt so, in a good sense, pastoral first hour that I am wringing my hands in a good sense. I just can't wait. And I think it's just a huge privilege for me to be able to stand here and to, to point you to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. I get this feeling like this is the greatest privilege I could ever have as a pastor. To remind you again and again and again, no matter what you will face, no matter what you have faced, no matter what you are facing, that Jesus is better. 
Look to Jesus and don't look elsewhere. I hope you're even a tenth as excited as I am. It's so good (laughs) to be able to focus on Him as our everything. Well, let's go ahead and look at these introductory words where we see that Jesus is better and it's given seven reasons. We're given seven reasons to highlight his betterness, if you will. Number one, he is the son. He is the son. Look with me, if you would, at verse one, where we read these words long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And I want you to read it that way when you read it, because it's meant to be read that way. Oh, yes, God has revealed himself. Oh, yes, he's done so in different ways. He's a revealing God. He's graciously shown himself to us. But in these last days, drum roll, climax, high point, fulfillment, everything, he's spoken to us in his son. You know, it's one thing to hear from Ezekiel. As a matter of fact, I think it would be pretty weird to hear from Ezekiel based upon things we know about Ezekiel. But it would be the Word of God. We're not talking about hearing from Ezekiel. We're talking about hearing from none other than God, the Son. He's spoken to us in His Son. It doesn't get any better than that. And as we will see in the book of Hebrews, He's not only spoken through His Son, the Son has given us Himself as the revelation. How good is that? He is better because He is the Son. Please notice there's deliberateness in this, that, that last days, okay, culmination, high point. Not, also notice that there's, there's deliberate, to use the fancy word, there's deliberate continuity. That Jesus didn't just come out of left field. He didn't just come out of nowhere. He actually ends up being from this God who's spoken to us in many diverse and different ways. And now, climax, high point, fulfillment, he's spoken to us through his son. At the same time, notice intentionally there's that discontinuity that it's not the same. He's not the same. He's not like Ezekiel. He's not like Isaiah. He's not like Jose. He's not like any of the others. He's unique. He's extraordinary. He deserves our riveted attention. I hope you see that. Jesus is better, number two, because he's the heir of all things. This is building upon the fact that he's the son. He's the son whom, verse 2 says, whom he appointed heir of all things. The son is the one who is the heir. The son who is the one who inherits. And he is the all-sufficient one, and so he inherits everything. All of the riches. This will become significant for us later on in our study because we will be reminded of the fact that we too are heirs, we too are sons, but the only reason we are heirs, the only reason we're sons, is because we're in the Son. And so that will become significant for us. My mind is racing to Ephesians 3, 6 regarding us and our benefits in this. Let's move on. Jesus is better because he is the creator. That's kind of a showstopper. (laughs) How about that? Verse 2 goes on to say, regarding the Son, through whom also he created the world. How about that? You know, how about Mr. and Mrs. Mary and Joseph at the PTA meeting? Listening to everybody talk. Well, here's what our little Johnny's accomplished. 
And here's what our little Sally's accomplished. What kind of prospects do you have for a scholarship? Oh, well, you know, our son made the world. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty ridiculous, but maybe a little bit of ridiculousness kind of gets our attention. I mean, it's just meant to, to, to be amazing, unparalleled, matchless. God has spoken to us in His Son, who, by the way, is the Creator. And this will play a super important role as we work our way through this book, as we find ourselves tempted to maybe go down other roads for spiritual enlightenment, maybe down other roads to somehow get to God more effectively. Hello, we're talking about Jesus who made the world. It doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't even get close to better than that. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created through Him and for Him. He's the point of it all. He's the Creator. Tough to match that one. Jesus is better, number four, because He's God. Jesus is better because He's God. Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's a pretty astonishing thing to say and to hear if you're a first century Jew. We don't do images. He is the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of the glory of none other than God. He's saying in effect that, 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 that he is none other than God. Using that Old Testament fancy theological word, the Shekinah glory. If you've seen that, you've seen God. Makes me think of Exodus 24, verse 15 and following, or even in the New Testament with Paul's encounter of the risen Christ in Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Philip Hughes, in his helpful commentary on Hebrews, says this, the principal idea intended here is that of exact correspondence. And we're not going to take the time to start teasing these things out, but it's been observed by many to, to see that, that, that he's, he's, showing, he, he's saying it in such a way that there can be a distinction between the Father and the Son, and yet the Son is God. This is why we as Christians have a view of God that is Trinitarian. This would be one of those passages you would go to. The Son is God. Someone made this statement regarding this. Of the same essence, that's what he's talking about here, as the Father and the Spirit, the eternal Son is the original archetypal Word of God. And by the way, before we move on, if the Son is God, let me ask you, what, what does it say about the appropriateness of your trusting Him? says everything, doesn't it? Where is your trust? That becomes an important issue in the book of Hebrews. As you're tempted to maybe go elsewhere, can you really trust this Jesus? Well, if he's none other than God, you can trust him. Jesus is better. Are we having fun so far or what? 
Man, this is so good. This is so outstanding to consider for us. Number five, Jesus is better because he does the works of God. Verse three then says, and he, here's this important word regarding the works of God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's effortlessly, effortless for him because he's God, but he upholds, please notice, the universe doesn't get bigger than that by the word of his power. The, the word for uphold is used elsewhere, and the idea is, is there's something dynamic. It's not just upholds like Atlas upholds. That's not the idea. That might be an impressive thing. But, but he upholds the, the, the entire universe. It's an active word as in going from, from point A to point B. He carries the universe. And this is a providence word that he's in charge, that he's in control. And he is carrying the universe and all that it contains toward his own desired end. Sovereign creatorship, doing the works of God in providentially caring for his universe. It, it is grand to see. Indeed, he is the one who causes all things to work together for our good. You can trust him. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a good image. He, he is the Atlas one holding it all together, but not only that, he's moving. This is great. Jesus is better, number six, because he's a perfect priest. He's a perfect priest. Verse 3 says, After making purification for sins. And that's what Old Testament priests did. He's assuming we're thinking like that. After making purification for sins. Notice there's completion. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to see in Hebrews, he's called the high priest, not just a priest. But what does he do? He makes purification. Oh, so he's a lot like those Old Testament priests. That's right. He's a lot like those Old Testament priests. And at the same time, he's a lot Unlike those Old Testament priests, he's better, which we're going to see a tons of this in the book of Hebrews. He's better because his work is done because what does it say at the end of verse 3? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Done. Complete. Work is over. Justice of God satisfied. Wrath of God satisfied. Sins atoned for. It is glorious. And it is grand. Therefore, the implication is going to be in the book of Hebrews and for you and for me. Therefore, the priesthood is no longer necessary. Because he, as the ultimate high priest, satisfied the wrath of God once and for all. He made, definitively made, purification for sins. Right? And so for them in the, in the first century to continue on, to somehow go back into that, would not be legitimate priesthood. It would be priestcraft. It would be an insult. It would be an offense. It would be an affront to none other than the one who is Jesus, who, by the way, is God. The same would be true today. Jesus is better. Move beyond. Don't even be tempted to see any legitimacy in priestcraft because Jesus is the purifying one. He made purification for sins. 
The sitting down emphasizes his success, his rest, his privileged position, his acceptance by the Father. Number seven, a seventh reason Jesus is better comes to us in verse four, but he's better than the angels. Having become, verse four says, much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Well, that comes after verse 3, remember. He's seated. That tells us he's better than because angels aren't going to be in that kind of situation. But not only that, here we see that he's inherited a better name. And we're going to see in just a moment that he has the name Son. He's distinct. I don't want to take a lot of time on it now because we're going to get to it. But just, just for now, just to see in this preview of where it's going, you might be puzzled by verse 4 where it says having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs having become wait a minute I thought he was God this seems to imply that he became much superior but he wasn't for a time and we're going to talk about that in just a little while but remember the eternal son of God becomes a human being And he has a work to do. He comes to fulfill all righteousness. He comes to to give his life as a ransom for many. He then rises again from the dead. And what's interesting is in multiple texts, we see Jesus declared the Son of God in a unique and extraordinary kind of way after the resurrection. Because it shows that he indeed is the one who has fulfilled the promises. That he indeed is the one who is to be exalted because his work is complete and done. And God is satisfied with his work. More about that in a while. But in a, in a real sense, he has become much superior to angels. Not, not in his, his very essence because he was already superior. But because of his work, and his work was a work that truly satisfied the Father... He's seated now, elevated. He's better than the angels. Well, I wouldn't be the first one to suggest that as we look at these opening verses, we see, we see the offices of Jesus. Here's your homework for the day. You can, you can write down the verses and, and categorize and see how Jesus is indeed prophet, that Jesus is indeed priest, and Jesus is indeed king. And you see all of those offices in these verses we just looked at, maybe not in that order. So friends, Jesus is what? He's better. Jesus is better. And now with this introduction in place, the rest of the book unpacks theme after theme after theme that we've just been introduced to, but it's always with the drumbeat that is so steady and so warm and so stirring, and that is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. You ready? All right. Let's go. Now we move on in the chapter. Now we see that he's better than angels. And you say, why would he want to say he's better than angels? What's so important about him being better than angels? And by the way, we had seven reasons before uh, why he's Better overall, now we're going to see seven Old Testament passages cited 
showing that he's better than angels. But why, would, why is this an important issue? Well, you may be tempted to conclude, and I don't think this is the best conclusion, but you may be tempted to conclude, and I think there's a place for application here, that this needs to be addressed because it's so easy for us to get distracted and focus on messengers as opposed to the king himself. Think about our own culture's lust for the spiritual, the angelic. And we want to go all about ourselves and talk about a guardian angels. And we want to talk about how so-and-so becomes an angel. And what about your angels and angels this and angels that and angels, 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 angels. Write a book about Jesus. might be tough to get it published. Write a book about being touched by your own personal angel or whatever it might be, and you'll probably get published quickly, especially if you make up a lot of it and it's not biblical. (laughs) And so the temptation is to say, I think that's why he's got to talk about how Jesus is better than angels. And by way of application, I say absolutely. I do want to say to people who find themselves fascinated with angels, who who, by the way, are great, and we'll talk about that, I want to say, you know what? Jesus is better. Read Hebrews 1. Jesus is so much better. So by way of application, I think there's a certain definite sense that we can say, let's remember Jesus is better. And it's evidence of our perverted hearts that end up saying, I think I'll worship the messenger as opposed to the one who is none other than God. But I don't think that's why it's here. I think it's here because angels indeed are great. And angels indeed have historically been used by God in great ways. Specifically, angels have been involved in the giving of God's law, giving of God's revelation. Angels have been associated with and been used by God in association with redemption as well. And so it would seem in this book that these first century professing believers are discounting Jesus because they're thinking somehow if God is going to speak, he's going to speak in a profound way through angels because after all, he has done that in in that kind of way before. Just some helpful commentary on this. Angels have been described by some credible sources as the supreme messengers of the Old Testament. In bringing the final revelation of God to his people, it's the Son, but they certainly have been used. In the Old Testament, angels played a role in revelation and redemption, Exodus 3.2, Isaiah 63.9. Further, it was believed that the law had been mediated to Moses through angels, Acts 7.38-39, Galatians 3.19, a notion shared by the writer of Hebrews and his readers, as we will see in chapter 2, verse 2. So, it seems like They're fascinated with angels, all right, and they're giving angels the attention, but it's not just because they are utterly confused by pop culture. If God is going to speak and he's going to speak greatly, then we're going to go angel route. And he's saying, no, I've got to show you that Jesus is better. You know, feeding some of this might be the fact that it's fresh in everyone's memory that Jesus was so humiliated that he humbled himself, suffered, gave himself up to be crucified. Doesn't seem very powerful, especially when you're suffering under the hands of powerful people. And it might be a good time to start thinking about angels, man. They're powerful. 
And he said, no, I got to tell you, Jesus is better. And so let's dive in now at these texts, and we'll hit them pretty quickly, seven of these texts, to show a person who's very sympathetic to the Old Testament and its authority that Jesus is better. Let me remind you of these things. First Old Testament citation is recorded for us in our verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? What's the implied answer? None of them. He's assuming that. And I don't know exactly his tone and demeanor in chapter 1. But we do know from other texts that his tone and demeanor is sometimes very compassionate, very encouraging. To the other extreme, it is in-your-face confrontational. And I would imagine that there's probably everything in between. And I would just guess, and I'm totally guessing, that chapter 1's probably got some of each. But you can sense how it could be in a condescending way. You know what? Read your Old Testament about angels. You want to start thinking somehow angels are superior? You need to go back and read the text yourself. The text you say is the text that's supporting your view. And let me start with Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Everyone knows, even even, uh, Jews would know, is a messianic text. You are my son, today I have begotten you. When, When did God ever say that about an angel? And the implied answer is he's never said that about an angel. That's a a Messiah kind of text. Remember Psalm 2, and I mention this a lot because it's used a lot in the New Testament. Remember Psalm 2 is used in the New Testament again and again and again regarding the work of Jesus, specifically regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Today I have begotten you. Today you've officially been declared in a way I haven't declared you before to be my son. Please remember that as we look at a verse like this, that we've just learned that Jesus is the God who creates. So when we interpret this verse, we don't say, well, Jesus is a created being then. Today I have begotten you. I can see where we'd be tempted to go down that road, but we just learned in the context that he's the creator God. So then what we do is we start investigating different passages that quote Psalm 2 and we see, oh, that's associated with resurrection. This is what I was talking about before. Like in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 or in the book of Acts, that God, when he raises his son from the dead, now sees the son's work as complete. And so in a unique, extraordinary way, he now declares him to be the son of God. The one who sufficiently and completely did everything that was necessary for him to do. And let me just make it the announcement that he has succeeded. And so it's a both and thing. Jesus is the eternal son. We've been learning about that already in our verses. But there is a sense in which, as some theologians have said, he's the adopted son. Here's a great quotation, I think, from one theologian describing this. There is therefore an important sense in which Jesus Christ was adopted by the Father as Son. Only after His active and passive obedience. Not as eternal Son, but as the faithful covenant servant who fulfilled the commission entrusted to Him. Let me unpack that a little bit. He's the eternal Son. We've been seeing that. We're going to see it more in Hebrews. But yet, there's also this time, which is post-resurrection. 
he declares him to be the Son of God. That's because he's succeeded. He's fulfilled all righteousness. He's done everything right and he's been tempted through it all and he's given himself up for us and he's been powerfully raised from the dead and when he's raised, Hebrews, or excuse me, again, Romans chapter 1 verse 4, he's declared the Son of God. In a way, he hadn't been declared the Son of God before. He's successful. He did it. He's better than angels. To what angel did God ever say, Today I have begotten you. He never has. But uniquely, there's been one. And his name is Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's both and. A second text that he gives to his audience and to us is recorded in verse 5 or again. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Referencing 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Well, that's not said of angels. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is fascinating. We don't have time to, to try to chase down all these trails, but it's fascinating because in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you've got this promise made to David, the anointed king. But the promise is so big, there's no way David is going to be able to, to, to fill those shoes. There will not be fulfillment in David. He's not the ultimate Messiah. Oh, so it's going to be Solomon? <laughs> no. Solomon doesn't do it either. And yet there are these eternal promises made regarding this Davidic promise. And you say, how is this going to work? Well... Even the Old Testament prophets saw something about how this is going to work. There's got to be somebody greater. There's got to be an ultimate David. There has to be one who would come in the line of David. We talk about it in Matthew chapter 1 where you've got the lineage of Jesus and he ends up being a son of David. So that there's, there's this anticipation. There's this expectation. So here, in reference to Jesus, when he says in verse 5 of Hebrews 1, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's never said that to, uh, regarding angels. That's regarding the one who would fulfill the great messianic promise. One who's in the line of David. Jesus fits the bill. Similar to this is John chapter 7, verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and, become, and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, I realize one thing that's going on here that's hard for us is we don't end up appreciating these great promises. Hopefully, this will help us and it'll cause us to go back to some of these things. But he's showing how Jesus legitimately fits into the Old Testament scheme and here he's showing that that proves his point that, hey, this couldn't have been fulfilled by an angel. So why are you so focused on angels? You should be so focused on Jesus, who is none other than the ultimate David. And from here, things progress. He gives a third text in verse 6. And again, he's piling on, isn't he? Some of this might be intended to be a little bit insulting. Let me give you another text and another text and another text. Or let me help you, let me help you, let me help you. 
verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is not only above angels, right? He's to be worshipped by them. Let all God's angels worship him? Uh Uh-oh. Man, this is scandalous if you don't believe Jesus is God. This is rocking the boat. This is really pushing it. This is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. This might make some of you uncomfortable based upon the fact that he's referencing Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And by referencing that text where the the, the one true God is the one who's called to be worshipped and only the one true God is called to be worshipped. Here, the author of Hebrews is interpreting Deuteronomy 32 Christologically. He's saying, that's talking about Jesus. And you go, what? Yeah, he's God, isn't he? What are you messing around with the angels for? He's God. To what angel did he ever say that? This is, this is borderline scandalous what he's doing here. Unless Jesus is none other than God himself. Oh, by the way, just as a footnote, if you look up some of these passages I'm referencing, the Old Testament passages... Um, sometimes you'll see them clearly, sometimes you won't see them clearly. And in part, that's because uh, the writer to the Hebrews oftentimes is referencing the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And uh, your translation probably more reflects the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. So sometimes the wording is different. Um, sometimes it might be because the author of Hebrews is, is, is paraphrasing. If this is sermonic, he's giving you the idea. We can't be altogether sure, but just didn't want you to be confused by that. He's certainly capturing the, the essence of, of what he's saying. Lest you're confused, do notice that he, he refers to him as the firstborn. It's another big interpretive issue. Um, the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Firstborn is a, is a title of honor. It's a title uh, expressing rank. Um, If Jesus is the eternal God, he's not created, born in that sense. But what we do see in the New Testament is he is first born as in he was raised from the dead. And apart from him being raised from the dead, none of us would be raised from the dead. He leads the charge. He's the firstborn of the new creation, you might say. And that would be the intent and the idea as that's said. As Paul even says elsewhere, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Number four, a fourth text. In verse seven, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire from Psalm 104. That's intriguing. Maybe it's a good time for me to remind you, angels are lofty. Angels do significant works. God does use them as messengers. Here we see that he makes his angels winds and his ministers, so their servants, a flame of fire. But what we should be noticing here in this reference to Psalm 104 
is this. Look at it again and I'll read it a certain way where you'll capture it. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Emphasizing the fact that he is in sovereign control and he is in charge. And oh, by the way, he, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, tells the angels what to do. Why would you be so mesmerized by angels and not mesmerized by none other than the one who's sovereign over them? Right? Jesus is better. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is far, far better. He's sufficient for us to trust. A fifth Old Testament citation underscoring the fact that Jesus is better Set in contrast to the one we just saw in verse 7 is in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, referencing Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's pretty startling. Please notice it again. Of the Son, so now we have, we have the Father speaking. But of the Son, he says, Son... That's the idea. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. If you hadn't already offended everybody who didn't believe in the deity of Christ, you just did. Because none other than God the Father refers to the Son as God. Whoa! Jesus is better. Because God the Father himself calls him God. He's better on, on, on every single possible level. Now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, sometimes leaders are called God. In a lower G sense. Because they're sovereigns. They're leaders. And, and sometimes they're, they're referenced in this way. Or you could see David referenced this way because he, he, he's representative of God on earth. He is the anointed king. He's God's king on earth. But David could never fulfill the messianic promises. There's a built-in... There's a, there, a built-in expectation for, for, for that covenant that we learned about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, or I referenced, for, for it to be one that ends up being one where the king rules forever. It can't be David. And it can't be Solomon. And it can't be any other other than the one who is going to be none other than, oh, it's now time to see the progression where we will eventually need to go from lowercase g to capital case g. Because the only one who could ever fulfill the promises in the end would have to be none other than God, the God-man. There's a built-in expectation for someone greater Well, do notice in verse 8, your throne. So it's emphasizing that Jesus is better than the angels because he has dominion, because he has a throne. And so now he's going to emphasize his rule in verse 8 where we keep reading the scepter of uprightness. This is a judge. This is a king. Is, a, is the scepter of your kingdom. Who are angels in the kingdom? Rulers? No, they're servants. He's even used the word. And so if we're talking about this grand kingdom, don't be overly uh, done with angels because they're servants, but we're talking about the one who holds the scepter, the scepter of uprightness. 
And it's his kingdom. Verse 9 then says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That means he's a good and perfect king. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That is one of our better words. Beyond your companions. Who are the companions? I don't know. The text doesn't really tell us exactly. Are the companions the angels because he's better than them? You could say they're companions in one sense. They're servants and things like that. Are the companions fellow human beings? Yeah, because we inherit in Christ. I just don't know for sure, but here's what I do know. The point. The point is he's better than angels. And he has been anointed by God in a unique and extraordinary way beyond his companions. If I could just speculate for a moment, and I don't want to try to speculate too much about this because I haven't seen much about it. And if you come up with a new idea, you're most definitely, certainly wrong. Um, (laughs) It's kind of how it goes. Um, But could it be that he's anointed beyond his companions in that he's greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than any of the other anointed kings of Israel because he is none other than the eternal God. God anointed those other kings, but not like he anointed this king. He is the king. The king. Sixth Old Testament quotation underscoring that Jesus is better is in verse 10. And now Psalm 102, 25 to 27. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth Now he's calling him Lord. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. What kind of theology are you seeing in there? You're seeing eternality. You're seeing divinity. Verse 11, they will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Notice the the, the contrast. They're, They're mutable. They're changing. But then in verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up. So he's sovereign over them. He's the one that's going to be in charge. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. He's immutable, unchanging, never to wear out because it says, and your years will have no end. I really, really, really like 10, 11, and 12. Who is this Jesus we're talking about? Not only is he the one who will never wear out, he will be the one who will never change, which becomes very important when it comes to trusting in him. But not only that, he is the one who is overseeing the wearing out of that which is temporary. That's how in charge he is. That's how in charge he is. He's sovereignly in charge. This becomes important later, by the way, in the book of Hebrews as we contemplate suffering temptation maybe to walk away following jesus has gotten a little hard um i might pursue something else to fulfill my spiritual needs or you know whatever i might go backward back to what has now become priestcraft jesus is sovereignly in charge of the future he's overseeing even what's happening in this world. We see that in those three verses we looked at. In other words, therefore, you can trust Him. It's all going to perish. 
it's all going to unwind and unravel. But do know that as you watch it unwind and unravel, that you can be uh, connected with, you, you can be trusting in the one who's even in charge of that. So good. Don't trust angels for your future. They're not in charge of the future. Jesus is extraordinarily in charge of the future, to put it mildly. And finally, there's an Old Testament text used to show that Jesus is better, and it's Psalm 110, which is referenced so many times in the New Testament. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Implied answer is, well, well, none of them. Well, maybe there's that one verse in the Bible. I just can't think of it now. <laughs> no. The, the, the implication is they know that there is no such verse. There is no such reality. We're talking about the very one, the unique one, the only one who was told by his father to sit at his right hand, the place of privilege, the place of dignity, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which again is, is showing this anticipation. You want, you're wondering about your future. You're wondering what's going to happen. You know what? Isn't it great to trust in the very one who has been at the right hand of the Father, therefore pleased by the Father, or finding pleasure in the eyes of the Father, and the world is going somewhere. And oh, by the way, a time is coming when his enemies will be under his feet. And as we'll see, including Satan. You want to be on his side. Angels, schmangels. Well, I spoke too soon. Because our final verse in verse 14 does highlight something really, really nice and good about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice verse when it comes to your understanding of angels. They help us. Ministering spirits. Serving for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. I like angels. God uses angels. But do notice that they're used to serve us according to the salvation of the one who has made purification for sins has accomplished. Do notice they're under his sovereign control. Do notice even when they work, what ends up happening is we end up giving them credit. No, we give him credit because he is the one who is the Savior. And they are his messengers, his servants serving us. You see how it's so easy for us to maybe cross over that line of appreciation into perversion Let's appreciate the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly uses angels in our lives. You'd be hard, hard pressed to figure out when it's angels working. I think intentionally, because if you knew it was angels working, then you'd probably give the angels what? The credit and the homage and the worship, which we so pervertedly do. God uses angels, but they're His angels carrying out His purposes. Because he is the sovereign Savior who is better than angels. So don't mess around. 
Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. Don't insult God. Don't insult Christ. Don't don't have no hope and hopelessness in this world because you're chasing after something that's going to end up being under the feet of Jesus anyway. Or just wearing out. Remember Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is better. And now we're ready for the exhortation, which we'll see next week in chapter 2. He ends up saying in chapter 2, Therefore, in light of this, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now we're ready to connect the dots. And we'll do that next time. Father, thank you for your great son, Jesus. May we never tire of enjoying Him and His significance and His greatness and worshiping Him and finding our lives aimed at exalting Him. Lord, help us to be quick to repent of our our, our foolish and petty sins and our grievous sins. Most of all, that we would not commit this sin of somehow looking to someone or something as greater than Your great Son, Jesus, in whom You are well pleased. But may we worship Him as the angels are called to worship Him. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church and thank you for the men and the women and the boys and girls who are here today. Thank you for reminding us in such a stark and profound and simple way regarding Jesus as supreme and sufficient. According to your grace and the work of your spirit, may we live for his glory and for his honor. Amen.